0: Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our guest for today is a third-generation CPA and the founder of Freedom Family Office. He helps entrepreneurs produce predictable income, create their ideal life, and build their legacy. Here to discuss the strategies and take advantage of tax income and how to get started with syndication funds to grow your real estate portfolio. Welcome, Noah Rosenfarb. All right. Today, we've got Noah Rosenfarb on the show with us. He is the founder of Freedom Family Office. He has also written four books, taken a company he founded public, sold eight companies, and completed over 45 real estate investments. Noah, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. I'm sure that there's a lot more in your history. Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Uh, Sure. So I'm a third generation CPA, started out in my dad's CPA firm, helped him scale that from 12 employees to 70 and exit to a top 20 accounting firm. And then I left to start a family office for affluent divorced women, which I ended up selling a couple of years later. And lo and behold, kind of got back into the business right at the turn of the decade here. And started Freedom Family Office to serve successful entrepreneurs, people that have seven figure incomes, eight figure net worth, that need all of the financial services under one roof. So, we're a team of accountants, lawyers, and financial planners that work exclusively with successful entrepreneurs.
2: So, one of the companies you founded, you took public. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more? I don't think that we've had anyone on the show who's taken a company public before. So, that's pretty amazing. I've always had like a side dream of doing that, but not Do you want to so, just uh, give us a little more on that?
1: Sure. So, as part of my business over the years, I've had different funds. One of which was a private equity fund. The private equity fund focused on buying websites, internet-based businesses, and when we decided that we didn't like the way that fund was operating, we wanted to evolve our business model and the way we evolved it was by creating a clean balance sheet company that we took public. That process has taken a number of years to kind of go through all the regulatory and compliance related requirements, but Fiji Royalty is what it's called, Fiji F-I-G-I, the symbols, the tickers F-I-G-I. And we started that business with the intent of buying revenue-based royalties in internet businesses. So instead of acquiring the equity or providing the debt, we were using our capital and ideally the stock of our company to provide compensation at closing for an acquisition. And in exchange, we'd receive an ongoing revenue-based royalty. So that business is now a couple of years old, but still in its infancy because we've been waiting to get through a bunch of these regulatory hurdles that seems like we're almost at the final one of getting everybody's shares certificated and deposited into their brokerage accounts and. We're looking forward to scaling that company and using the company stock as capital for acquisitions, much like the way somebody might use cash or Bitcoin or some other currency or commodity. We're using our stock to awesome. make acquisitions.
0: That's pretty incredible. I mean, that's just a unique experience that not a lot of people have gone through. I would say I tip my hat to you. That sounds like a long road. And you know, from what I've heard, yeah. it's very complicated. I'm going to bring us back into real estate here. Can you tell us like how you first got into real estate and kind of like what led you on to that journey within real estate to where
1: you are now? Yeah. And I have a free ebook on how my family generates infinite returns, investing in apartments at talkaboutre.com where I share some case studies and some stories. The origin story is really when my wife and I graduated college. Uh, We weren't yet married, but we wanted to buy a two family house and live in half and rent half. And we were able to do that in such a way where it was a brand new construction home. The builder was living there for two years so that he could avoid the capital gains tax when he sold. And when I went to buy it, I was paying full price. But I said, listen, add $7,500 to the purchase price and give that to me at closing as a closing credit. And at the time, you were able to finance 97% of your acquisition because this was back in 2000. So between the closing credit and the low down payment, I ended up getting $40 at closing to buy that house. (laughs) Uh, And my wife and I lived in half, rented half. The tenant basically was paying our mortgage. And eventually, as the equity appreciated, we took equity out of that house to go buy another two-family house. And we took equity out of that house to go buy another house. And we, we did that a handful of times early on in the last cycle.
2: That is the dream. Investing with no or low money down. How was your progression growing into larger deals and getting to where you are, where you're utilizing your family office to raise large amounts to purchase larger properties?
1: So I would say from 2000 to about 2007, I was working as an accountant in my father's business, you know, earning a W-2 salary plus a discretionary bonus. My wife was a school teacher. And so the way we were looking to buy real estate was to get as much leverage as we could and acquire apartment buildings that I was going to manage directly. And we were doing that and the plan was working fine up until the you know recession came and smacked us in the face. But really I had decided before things had turned south that really this wasn't the right business model for me. And I figured that out because of a concept called return on time. And so when I was measuring my performance in those early naught years, I was just looking at how much money did I have in the deal and how much money was coming out of the deal. And those numbers were impressive. But Mm -hmm. I started to realize that like on Tuesday night, I'd leave work and I'd have to go deal with something with a tenant or Saturday morning when I would wake up before we would go out for the day, I'd have to go deal with some tenant issue. So I started adding up my time. And at the time that I was doing this exercise, maybe I was making like $75 an hour in my Core business as an accountant. And so I started subtracting $75 an hour from the returns I was generating as if I had to pay myself for the effort I invested. And all of a sudden, my returns didn't look so good. And (laughs) so I said, you know what? I don't want to make $75 an hour managing apartments. I want to invest my capital for growth. After the recession, I came at it with a different angle, in part because now I was managing other people's money. In 2007, I started a family office for affluent divorced women. And so by 2011, I started pooling the capital of those women clients along with my capital. And we started investing in larger syndications together.
0: I'm actually really curious, like the family office, we've talked with some family offices here and there, and a lot of them make their money off commissions and stocks and that sort of stuff. Can you tell us like how you kind of developed that company? And then more so like how you advise or, talk to people about investing in private placements.
1: Sure. So maybe I'll take you more up to speed and describe what it is that we do now. Okay. Cuz it might be a little bit more relevant. So <laughs> family offices are it's a term that doesn't have a strict definition. But what it mostly signifies is somebody who used to be called a stockbroker that then became called a financial advisor that then became called a wealth manager now wants to be called a family office professional. And it's really just a symbol that maybe you're dealing with clients at a higher net worth level. A real true family office, a single family office, is how most people think of that term, which is a family having their own wealth managed by their own team of experts that they hire and pay directly. So That's a single family office. If you're the Gates family, if you're the Musk family, if you're the Dell family, you have your own family office. When you get to about $300 million, the economics typically make sense to have your own independent family office. But when you're from that 100 million to 300 million, you're probably going to benefit from leveraging what's referred to as a multifamily office. And what we did is we scaled that down. So from 10 million to 100 million, that's really our sweet spot of entrepreneurs that we work with because we're a team of accountants, lawyers, and financial planners. We're doing everything under one roof that relates to their individual balance sheet. So their tax strategy, their insurance, their investments we're kind of managing all of that in-house together and we're asset allocation agnostic. So if an entrepreneur wants to allocate more of their capital to venture capital or early stage investments, and another entrepreneur wants to invest more in publicly traded securities, like we don't have a horse in the race, so to speak. We're happy to help them for whatever the asset allocation is that they want to build. And we're looking to guide them to leverage what they've created to become what we refer to as rich beyond money. So most people come to us already having achieved a certain level of financial success. And what we're looking to do is help them get really clear on what does the money mean to them? What do they want to use it for? And how do they have a life that's meaningful? And if we could help them orient their wealth towards that ultimate goal, then we think that's the true definition of success that we want to help them achieve.
2: So Noah, let's say that you know an entrepreneur comes to you and they have a successful business and you know most of their equity is tied up in their company and they're working a lot. What are some of the, I guess, low hanging fruit or first things that you would do for a client like that to, I guess, help them reap some of their financial freedom?
1: Yeah. So we have a process that we walk entrepreneurs through that usually takes like two to three months. It's kind of a long time frame to get all your ducks in a row, but it starts by understanding what you have now. So what are your income and expenses? What are your assets and liabilities? How much is your business worth? We put that on a piece of paper. Let's just start by understanding. do we all agree where, where the starting point is? And then we have a conversation typically in a couple, we're having both parties on the phone, even though usually maybe the entrepreneur's solely responsible for managing the family finances. We wanna talk to the couple about what's the life you're trying to create what we refer to as your true north so if money were no object how would you be spending your time and as we build out that vision that they're trying to achieve together as a family that's where they want to go then we start designing what's the best way to get there and we do that through understanding you know the cash flow and how you're going to allocate your excess cash flow but more importantly maybe How are you going to avoid paying as much in income taxes? Because for many entrepreneurs, income taxes is their single largest expense. And so if we could reduce how much they pay in taxes, we effectively increase the amount that they can allocate to productive investments. And we go through this long planning process to optimize all those decisions, at the end of which each family has a blueprint to say, OK, I'm clear about where I am. I'm more clear than ever about where I want to go. And now I have some confidence that I know I'm, how I'm going to get there.
2: Thank you. It's very enlightening. So I guess jumping back to the real estate a little bit, you were on a panel for Entrepreneurs Organization regarding funds. And I'm just kind of interested to hear about your experience with real estate funds and you know how they might be different from a single asset syndication.
1: Yeah, and I've done both. I've done probably... 15 or 16 syndications, and then I've also done four funds. There's, I think, benefits and detriments to each structure. So what I like about individual syndications from my perspective is it enables me to bring in new investors on a regular basis and expose them to what we have to offer. I would say that's the biggest business model driver for having syndications for me right now. The main benefit as an investor of investing in a syndication is you keep your control. So you have the ability to decide in each asset, whether or not you want to participate. On the fund side, obviously the con is that you don't have that control. So if someone's buying assets in Cincinnati and you don't want to own assets in Cincinnati, well, too bad you signed up for the fund. If somebody's buying an asset at today's price and you'd say, well, I'd rather wait and buy in six months because I think the price will be cheaper. Well, too bad the fund is buying and you've got to participate. The flip side of the fund is that you can often get more exposure to a higher volume of assets than you would if you were investing directly in syndications based on how much the minimums might be. And then from a reporting standpoint, as an investor, when you invest in a syndication, you're getting a K-1 at the end of each year in each of your individual investments. In a fund, you're getting one K-1 that's summarized for all of the investments. So from a compliance standpoint, it's a little bit simpler on the fund. And then the last main delta, I would say, is how fees get charged to the investor. So in a syndication, if you have a successful syndication, then the sponsor, the person who's put the deal together, is going to make most of their money from the promoted fees, the amount above the preferred return that they're going to get allocated. That's well and good. And then unfortunately, if there comes a time where the sponsor can't generate at least the preferred return, they're probably not going to make any money on that deal. In contrast, in a fund, you're looking at it on a fund level. So if you have, let's say, three winners and one loser, the operator's only going to get paid on the net performance of those four assets. Fund investor standpoint, you've got to decide which is more cost effective for you, which gets you the better result, and you know which structure you think makes more sense for your family.
0: Do you find with, I guess from my perspective of the industry we've started in the syndication single asset space and typically like the progression goes from single assets and then kind of creating a fund and then also doing single assets and then just moving kind of directly to a fund some of the guys that i know in the space continue to do the single assets but they just end up being larger projects is that kind of what you see as well for like the progression of syndicators and Maybe if you could just kind of comment on kind of like how that works.
1: The reason most people prefer, most operators prefer to have funds is because raising capital is time consuming. And so if you have committed capital, you don't have to worry about raising the capital. When you find a deal, you have certainty of execution. You know that that money's going to come in and you don't have to go back every single time you find something to buy and go ahead and raise the capital. So it becomes an allocation of time and resources. So if you have a fund, you invest your time and resources to raise the fund, and then you can convert and switch and you know use your time and effort to find assets to invest in. When you're on an individual syndication level, you're kind of repeating that cycle. Every time you find something, you've got to raise the money. Then you find something, then you raise the money. So it depends on the infrastructure, that each operator has and how they want to build out their system. For me, what I've decided is that the cadence and the effort required to do the fundraising is actually good to because it's a feeder for my family office business. So going out and speaking with people and understanding where are they now and how much capital they have to allocate, that gives us another chance to speak with them and see if, well, wait a minute, maybe you would benefit from our family office services if you're telling me you know you've got a million and a half of liquidity that you're looking to invest. Maybe you don't want to put it all in one individual syndication, but you may want to deploy it across multiple asset classes and you might need a plan to do that.
2: You mentioned you've done a couple funds. Would you mind just sharing an experience that you had putting a fund together and then what it was like to find the assets and I guess deploy the funds? Funds. (laughs) I'll
1: I'll talk to you about our newest fund, which is our fourth fund. Our fourth fund is a very unique structure, which I think will become a predominant structure for many syndicators that want to go into funds. And the reason it's unique, it's the platform was developed by a company called Avestor, Inc, A-V-E-S-T-O-R, Inc.com. And what Avestor did is they built a platform to allow you to create a fund structure, but inside the fund... You essentially have individual syndications because you're allowing the investor to control which assets they want to allocate to. We've built that out as our fourth fund because it will enable us to continually raise new capital from new investors. It's a bit of a reduced cost structure in lieu of having each individual syndication, which costs us about $25,000 per syndication to set up. You've got one setup fee that you could use over multiple deals, and there's an additional expense of the platform fee, which is around 50 basis points. But I think it's a value-added fee because the investors can get that consolidated reporting I was talking about. They can also get the consolidated fee allocation so that a loser would offset a winner with inside the fund, but they get the chance to maintain control over how they allocate And then for us, our use case for that fund isn't necessarily for individual real estate investments because we raise too much capital per deal to want to flow it through that structure. But we have a lot of other alternative assets and smaller investments that we were making with clients outside of real estate or even inside real estate. And we wanted a chance to bring the same families that are investing with us in real estate into these other asset classes like cryptocurrency, like commodities, like private debt and some preferred equity.
0: And now here's a word from our
2: sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. So those are options for investors in the fund to allocate to like crypto or I mean even interesting. And I guess when you have a, let's say that you purchased an apartment and it's in the fund, like, is there a limited amount of allocation for that specific asset?
1: Only to the maximum that you set. So, you know, let's just say you were raising, like right now, we have a private note with a small privately held franchise or they need 500 grand of working capital for expansion. They're paying us. 12% Twelve percent interest, one percent per month. Plus, they gave us a little bit of incentive equity in the company itself, some coverage. So it's only five hundred grand. Really, it's there's room for you know ten investors in that deal inside the fund. As soon as it sells out, that's all there is. But I wouldn't have another efficient way to raise five hundred thousand dollars for one business. I couldn't do that in a syndication because the fees would make it you know not worthwhile. But putting it inside of a fund like this. It makes sense. I have an opportunity to give a couple of investors a nice high yield instrument that they could invest in. And the limit on that one is the maximum that we could invest. And the flip side, for the cryptocurrency fund that we're working with, they're options-based, so they're long, short, not just individual cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but also additional cryptocurrencies. And there's liquidity to that model. So there's no minimum, no maximum. You know, you could just come in for as little as I think 50 grand of an allocation to that fund. When you're
0: talking about the crypto and then that like kind of debt for a company, that's all within this fund four that you're talking about. And those are like Correct. different yeah. options within the fund that the
1: investor can kind of elect to allocate their funds to. Yeah. They build their own, like much like a 401k plan where... Yeah the company would set up what investment options are available to the employees. It's similar. We're setting up the fund with investment options that I want my family to invest in. And essentially the way that our family office is constructed is I'm kind of the primary family that we're thinking about. And what is it that I want to invest in for my family? What is my asset allocation going to look like? And then I deliver that to the rest of the families that aren't spending as much of their personal time trying to find investments. But we also have clients that'll come to us. We just had a client sell a portion of their company. They said, this is the private equity firm that bought us. They have a new fund they're raising. You know, Here's their model. Here's their pitch deck. I'm going to put some capital in. Do you want to put some additional clients into this fund as well? And we can add that to our platform. We can allocate to them through that fund. And then we can aggregate more capital with some of the other families.
0: And I'm just curious, does your fund for like the overall, does it have a target on a raise or is there a maximum that like once you get to, you know, we've got enough money or it's just
1: kind of unlimited? It's kind of unlimited. The maximum offer right now is 25 million because we like to be exempt registered advisors, which is a $25 million maximum offering. So I have my family office is a registered investment advisory firm. The funds and the syndications are typically not registered. They're exempt registered so that we file a form D. We're not meeting certain reporting requirements if you raise more than $25 million. And then you're also limited to 99 investors.
0: Is that still under the, was it 506C section of the SEC? This is
1: a 506C offer. Yeah. Okay. I started doing 506B offers back you know in 2011, 2012. And then I converted to 506C offers a couple of years ago because I do podcasts like this, or I post on social media and that could be considered advertising. And as a result, we wanted to make sure that we were only accepting accredited investors.
2: Just for anyone listening, a 506B is an offering that's exempt from SEC requirements to, I guess, list that investment as public and you can have up to 30 non-accredited investors. 506C is up to 99 accredited investors, up to 25 million. So Noah, in regards to, I guess, real estate syndications, like, is that where you're focusing? What percentage of your time are you spending looking at real estate deals versus raising funds and versus, uh, I guess, working with clients in your family
1: office? Most of my time is spent working with my team, and then also creating content, whether it's content that we're creating today on this podcast or. You know, new concepts that I want to introduce to entrepreneurs to get them thinking about how to become rich beyond money. So, most of my time is either focused on that content side or it's focused on working with my team. And then my team's time, you know, is divided based on their roles and responsibilities. So, we've got a team of 21, which just, you know, three years ago is really just me and my brother. And so, we've expanded dramatically over COVID to serve more people.
2: And so, you have a real estate division. I guess there's Correct. somebody who's in charge of real estate yeah. on yeah. the team.
1: Well, I met through EO, actually.
2: That is awesome. You know, how is running a business with your brother?
1: I love it. So he is um, yes. <laughs> he's in Puerto Rico. Yeah. He lives outside of San Juan in Puerto Rico. And that was the opportunity for us to work together was really based around his willingness to go and live there. So we own two businesses in Puerto Rico. The unique thing there is they're owned by my Roth 401k plan. And Puerto Rico, the reason we formed the businesses there is because they have a special tax incentive where they only charge a 4% corporate tax rate. So my brother, Ron, sources all of our income to Puerto Rico in those two businesses. If we had a million dollars of profit, as an example, we'd pay $40,000 in taxes, the $960,000 would be distributed as a dividend. His dividend isn't taxable because he's a Puerto Rico resident, and my dividend isn't taxable because it's owned by a Roth 401k plan, which pays no tax. And then that money compounds for me tax-free for the rest of my life. And if there ever comes a time that I want to take that money out, I'll pay no taxes on the way out as well.
2: That is quite the tax strategy. Wow. I knew that Puerto Rico had some tax advantage status. So essentially he is actively managing the business and you're through your 401k is you're investing in it. Correct. And because you're not allowed to actively invest in businesses that are owned by your 401k.
1: That's incorrect. And most people, yeah, they don't realize that that is true for an IRA, but it is not true for a 401k. There's a unique area of tax code called ROBS, R-O-B-S, Roll Over Business Startup. And the IRS will allow you to invest your 401k plan assets into a business that you are an employee of. So I receive a W-2 from both of those companies. I'm an employee of both of those companies, and I have to be actively engaged in both of those businesses in order for this 401k plan structure to be compliant.
0: That's super interesting. That's the first time I've heard of that. So that's pretty cool.
1: I was the first person in the world to do it. Uh, (laughs) This would be referred to as a tax invention. So an invention is something that somebody comes up with that nobody's done before. And tax inventions are always getting created. And so I created this with a co-inventor, someone who had a lot of expertise more than me. I really had the use case and I worked with him to look at, how we could delve into the tax code and find a solution to my problem, which is I've got a young family now, 15-year-old son and 12-year-old daughter. And at the time, I did not want to move to Puerto Rico, but I wanted to leverage this 4% corporate tax rate. So through some creative planning, we came up with a structure that worked. And now we've had a couple other dozen families follow in our footsteps and implement this for their businesses as well. Not just in Puerto Rico, but also based in the U.S.
2: So how would a family implement this technique?
1: Again, it goes back to the planning of like, where are you now? Where do you want to be? How are you going to get there? This could be a strategy to accelerate your ability to go from where you are to where you want to be. The key components are that you need income that you don't want to spend because again, you're wrapping it up in a 401k. And if you want to take it out before you're 59 and a half, you need to pay a penalty so you really want to do this for income that you don't need to support your lifestyle and income that you plan to save anyway and then from a structural standpoint you want to make sure that when you're starting this new business that you have a high degree of confidence that it's going to produce revenue greater than its expenses so that there be profits that you'll be able to utilize to make distributions.
0: Very very interesting. I, I, I kind of want to jump back into the fund a little bit. I've got kind of a specific question about it, which is, so as being a fund manager, and I know that you said you kind of have this real estate division and there's these single asset syndications that you invest with the fund in those syndications. Are you operating those syndications or are you finding operators to do it? I guess... Can you kind of tell us like the mechanics of like how that works and are you finding partnerships or kind of, I know that you said you partnered with someone in EO, but can you maybe just like delve into that just a little bit more? So just so we understand a little bit more kind of like. Yeah, our uh, primary
1: focus is capital raising. Yeah. So our job is to consolidate equity and bring it in a single check to someone that needs that capital. Yeah. And our expertise that we add on top of our investors' capital is figuring out which deals we want to allocate to. So investors trust us to look at deals and find deals that they know that my family is going to put our money into. And if Noah's putting his money there, then I'll put my money there, too. Obviously, the benefit of the syndication is they can say, oh, Noah's putting his money there, but I don't want to put my money there. And they can pass. Right. So our primary business is raising the capital, finding places to allocate it. Our counterparty is typically an operator, often that's fully integrated with asset management, property management, and construction management. But we do have some operators that we partner with that are just asset managers with a third-party property manager with third-party construction management. So we're willing to do those deals if we think they're the right deals, but we've always found a little bit of an edge with asset managers that also do direct property management.
0: Nice. And if you don't mind me asking, like, do you have like a sweet spot for the type of real estate that you look for or certain areas, uh, maybe target areas? The buy box
1: keeps changing. So I would say as interest rates have gone up and as the bridge loan market has dried up, what we've done for the last 10 years, which is heavy value add in predominantly like lower C-class assets that we could convert to C plus or B minus... That model is a little bit broken it, right today as we were talking here in the beginning of November 2022, but that means that other th- opportunities are expanding. So we're making a push into build to rent, uh, so new development of new projects. We find the risk reward profile there has actually gotten more attractive post-COVID and now that supply chains are starting to normalize and building costs have come back down. Financing is still relatively attractive in that space. We own about a half a million square feet of retail and a half a million square feet of office that we bought very early in the cycle, kind of 2011 to 2014. We stopped buying in 2014. I think there may be some of those deals that'll pop up on the radar that are going to start to look attractive now. You know, We want to move where the puck is going, as they say, as real estate moves through different parts of the cycle and interest rates move through different parts of the cycle. I think different things become attractive. I would say 2023, I'm more likely to allocate to preferred equity in multifamily because I think the risk reward profile there is going to be relatively attractive. I think we could get you know, mid to high teens returns on invested capital in a preferred position. And we're looking at anything that makes sense. Uh, is there kind of like a
0: deal size that, or, I mean, like, From the Southeast to the Northwest, you know, the difference in price is fairly significant. So, just depending on the target market, but I'm just kind of curious like, are you going down as low as like a couple million dollar deals or are you looking at like $10 million deals at the minimum? I I
1: just bought a two family house for cash, just my partner and I with a new operator, you know, a $400,000 deal, just because I'm testing a new operator and they're not ready to take our investor capital. So, often, what we like to do is invest just my money, just my partner Robert's money into a new operating relationship. See how they perform, test them, and then when we have confidence, then I, I'll write a bigger check with other people's money as well. Cool.
2: Well, I think it's about time to get to our four questions. Noah, it has been an awesome talk. Your tax strategy in Puerto Rico. I'm very, very impressed. <laughs> Take us away, Jen.
0: Sure. So our first question is, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self?
1: Go bigger, sooner. You know, I mentioned I was buying two family houses on my own independently. And I think even as a 25-year-old, I would have had the ability to pool capital and buy something bigger. And I wasn't really thinking about it because I was a practicing CPA. I was helping scale my dad's business. And I wasn't really thinking about commingling my personal investments with my business relationships. And I probably should have thought of that sooner.
0: I like that a lot. Yeah. we. Our advice is like, instead of buying a single family home, start off buying a fourplex. Like if we could do it again, that would be one of our pieces of advice is go bigger sooner.
2: Noah, so what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor?
1: I usually say I made homemade potato chips when I was eight years old. With John Bizarro and Chad Masurlian, and we went out before school and sold them for a dollar a bag. But that wasn't a real enterprise with employees. When I was 19, I bought a college pizzeria in my college town with my brother Mark. He was the primary owner, I was a minority partner. I started a catering division, and we served 20,000 meals a year to fraternities and sororities on top of operating a restaurant. So that was kind of my first real business. Yeah. I
0: That's huge. Very Uh, entrepreneurial. (laughs) Under 20 and serving 20,000 meals. I like it. (laughs) All right. Next question. How has your
1: formal and informal training shaped your journey? So I used to testify as an expert witness in divorce court about how much money people made and how much their businesses were worth and how they spent and allocated their capital. And one of the best parts of that training was that I had to write a written report for the judge to be able to read before I would testify in court. And the skill that was required was taking this large volume of complicated information and simplifying it into a way that a reader who's not as technical of an expert as I am could understand where I was coming from and agree with my position, just persuading them first through a written report and then through testifying as an expert witness and being sure that I could tell the judge that, hey, my story is better than the other expert's story. So you should believe me. Yeah,
0: that's a very unique
1: uh, experience
0: a, for sure.
2: That's <laughs> a first, lots of first today. <laughs> All right, Noah. And our last question is, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn?
1: You know, I think mistakes are always a tough word because it implies that you'd do something differently if you had to do it all over. And I like where I am. So I wouldn't call it a mistake, but I would say something that I've learned that was significant is I retired with the intention of finding meaning and purpose in my life through investing more of my time in philanthropy. And I spent about two years working with different charitable organizations that I care about and investing my time there. And at the end, I realized that I'd rather just give my money to them and spend my time with entrepreneurs because those are the people that I have the most fun being around. And so that really led me to building this family office for entrepreneurs and kind of serving my family and families that are like mine, where they have financial independence, they have time freedom, but they need to find that meaning and purpose in their life. And building something for me that serves a higher purpose that I'm not not just in this business to make money. I'm in this business to shape, you know, the future of families and the people that I'm helping. I've always thought of them as my heroes. When I was a little kid. I admired entrepreneurs because I knew that they were the ones that were creating jobs. They were the ones that were innovating and really were the ones that changed the world. So those are the people that I care about most. Those are the people that I get to support. And I'm glad that it didn't take me too long to put it all together. That's awesome.
2: Sage wisdom. Yeah. Gosh. What an awesome interview. Thank you yeah, so much. Noah. Appreciate it. Hey, uh,
0: Noah, if our audience wants to get a hold of you or maybe learn some more about you, what's the I know that you mentioned something earlier, but what's the best way for someone to get a hold of you?
1: So getting a hold of me is a bit of a challenge, but learning about what it is that we do and interacting with the content I'm creating is much simpler. You should reach out to me on LinkedIn. Or if we have a lot of friends in common on Facebook, reach out to me on Facebook, especially if you're like an EO member, I can usually vet that out. I'll, I'll accept <laughs> your friend request on Facebook if we've got some friends in common. But on LinkedIn, you know, all comers are welcome. And then if you had an interest in learning more about what it is that we do for families, you could go to talktofreedom.com and fill out an intake form, tell us about your situation, and you'll get on a call with our team that could describe how we might be of value to your family.
0: Awesome. Well, just again want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that I learned a lot today and appreciate your sage wisdom and experience. It's pretty fun to hear someone that's farther along in the journey than we are and appreciate you coming on and
1: sharing. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, hope audience something
2: as well. I'm just so impressed with the creativity of how you've focused your energy, you know, and just some of the inventions and the methods that you've come up with to It's just so unique and really, really fun to hear. And thank you so much for chatting.
1: With pleasure, (laughs) gentlemen.
2: All right. Have a great one, Noah.
0: Bye everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.